What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. Conversations that satisfy your curious mind. So excited to have you here. Look, before we get into it, quick PSA. Um, We have over 350 episodes and about one every 100 I screw something up, and this time I did, meaning uh, my audio quality is not that great. Luckily, we don't really come here for me. We come here for our incredible guest. Speaking of that guest, you are going to want to hear from him. Our guest this week is a lecturer at Harvard. He's written a bunch of books. LinkedIn listed him as the number one top voice for money, finance, and economics for 2015 and 2016. Worth Magazine profiled him as one of the 100 most powerful people in global finance. He holds a PhD and two master's degrees from MIT. Oh, and a bachelor's degree from Yale. Like what in the, who are these people? I swear some people just wake up in the morning one day and go, you know what? I want to go to school for like 40 years and $2 million. I don't know, but I'll tell you, it's always a treat to have an hour long conversation because the stuff that comes out is gold. Our guest this week is Vikram Mansharamani. 
Now, specifically, we are talking about his newest book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Artificial Intelligence. But really what we're talking about is this. We have over 350 episodes of experts here. I have almost single-handedly turned my decision-making process over to experts, and it served me pretty well. But there's one problem. When we forget the fact that experts can give us information, insight, and opinions, but that cannot replace our belief systems. When I learned about Vikram, I thought a perfect guest for this show, just to really bring it all back for us, to to remember that despite all of the information we hear on this podcast and others I'm sure you listen to, it's all about informing yourself so that you can make up your own mind based off of that information. And that's that. Before we hear from Vikram, a couple of things. First, have you checked out our social media recently? Like, we've stepped up our game. We've got some cool stuff going on over there. In fact, there will be a video posted soon that has nothing to do with podcasting. You get to see me outside in the woods at my house doing what I love to do best. But you're going to have to follow us on either Instagram or Facebook to see that. So check us out on social. Also, if you like what we're doing... Support us on Patreon. We've actually had like a nice little influx here. Patreon.com slash smart people podcast for two, five bucks a month. Not only do you get ad free episodes, but you also get access to our guests. Did you want to ask Vikram a question? Do you want to talk to a guy with that many degrees? Okay. Join us on Patreon. When we have him on the show, I say, hey, what questions do you want to ask him? And boom, it's done patreon.com slash smart people podcast support us and get some cool perks let's hear from vikram man sharamani as we talk about many things including his new book think for yourself let's all think for ourselves. let's all enjoy when i got the email that said, hey, you know, there's this guy, Vikram, he's really smart, he checks all the boxes, we'll get into all of the degrees you have. But his book is Think for Yourself. And he talks about how we rely too much on experts. I was like, okay, he's on the show, because the show is an expert driven podcast. So let's just dive right into the deep end with this, and ask, what is wrong with the reliance on people who know more than I do? I would say, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being uh, reliant on to some extent. It's really the problem that I have with experts in their influence on us is it usually results in blind reliance or mindless outsourcing of our thinking. And I'm all about tapping into the experts to get what they know that we need to know and that we don't know. The problem I have is the loss of autonomy and the sort of relinquishment of personal responsibility in this process. And so my frustration and sort of one of the main motivations for writing this book is I want people to mindfully make the decision whether or not they are going to be reliant on an expert or not. So it's really the blind part of that reliance that I'm worried about. I have to say, I think you're spot on in your assessment of that. I have found myself doing it multiple times now, given that I have this 
platform where essentially when I get curious about a subject, I'll say, okay, who is an expert that I trust? You know, and again, that where does that trust come from? There's some bias there. And then let me just let them tell me what to think. And it's so bad sometimes that if I'm struggling with an idea, I will say, well, why don't I know that? Like, why hasn't an expert given me the exam, you know, given me the insight? Let's say we take any topic. Let's say we take monetary policy. I have no idea where that came from, but let's just say we do. And I get three people on who have like the double PhD, they've worked in it. Um, and I ask them questions and then take their answers and basically implant it into my belief system. Is there a problem with that? Sure. I mean, I think you should understand why you have the beliefs you do. Um, and, you know, they may have a certain view of the world based on the silo in which they live. And you, as a decision maker, need to pay more attention to the context, right? So when, with the more expert a person, the more narrow and deep they tend to be. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, um, you know, focus is, a, is sort of a two-sided sword or a double-edged sword. Uh, one edge is it's useful in helping us get deeper into a topic, but focus is also something that is almost definitionally a filtering process where we filter out and ignore. And so deep focus can also be said in different terms as broad ignoring. And so what are you ignoring? And thinking about that is actually pretty important. And so relying on experts is fine. You can even adopt their opinions if you'd like. Um, but I would really want you to have some appreciation of the context so you understand the boundaries of where their statements are relevant and where they may no longer be relevant, where you mm -hmm. might tap into a different expert. Um, and so I, I think context matters and an appreciation for the silos in which these expert opinions are formed also matters. Yeah, I've thought about often how everybody, whether they recognize it or not, has a side or a thing that they're pushing for. You know, I'll never forget, uh, we interviewed somebody really intelligent, spent their whole life in one field and was advocating for said field. And I remember thinking, well, of course they are, because if I spent 30 years dedicating my life to something, uh, I would want it to be true or I would want it to be right or good. And so I would definitely be seeking out things that yeah. validated that as opposed to getting to the end of those 30 years and going, yeah, I don't, I don't actually think this was a useful endeavor. Just one side of that kind of yeah. bias that you're talking about. Oh, definitely. I mean, look, I'll, uh, there's, there's a couple of different tidbits there uh, that I think are worthy of quickly commenting on. Um, yeah. Number one, um, you know, I think it's Warren Buffett who says, never ask a barber if you need a haircut. Right? It's sort of one of these things like, of course, you know, the answer coming from that perspective, but a more nuanced way, uh, less folksy, but perhaps uh, just as powerful is a description that I've uh, used, uh, which was actually taken from a colleague of mine at Harvard, uh, Joseph Nye, who used to be the dean of the Harvard Kennedy School and has played numerous roles, just a fabulous uh, human being, uh, a really accomplished academic, a prolific author. In any case, he described it as follows, and I think it's probably as apt as anything. But if you want to know where someone stands on an issue, look at where they sit. And 
I think that's a really powerful way to describe it. So, you know, if you're curious, let's say you have a geopolitical conflict emerging. Um, you want to know where someone stands on an issue. Look where they sit. So if someone sits in the State Department on that issue, I bet you their stance is organized around diplomacy. If someone sits in the Pentagon, I bet you that their stance is going to be around military action. If someone sits in the Treasury Department, I bet you their stance is going to be all around economic sanctions. And so where you, if you want to see where someone stands on an issue, look at where they sit. Do you think that the best decision makers, the best leaders, the best forecasters, the best you know, uh, political leaders are those that are able to take a lot of information and filter it in a way that includes the least amount of their own bias. So, so to your point, look where they sit. Would therefore it be beneficial if you could sit there and say, okay, I recognize that I'm drawn this way because of my position. Like really somebody who's able to get that external view. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is you want someone who thinks for themselves, right? There you go, right, there you go. (laughs) One of the things I say in my book is it's very important to keep experts on tap, but not on top. We want to be able to, to, to drill into the insights and knowledge that experts have from their deep focus, but we don't want to give up autonomy to be able to integrate that view with the views of others, some of which may be contradictory. And so when I say keep experts on tap, but not on top, I'm saying you retain control and almost think of yourself as an artist painting or not painting, but putting together a mosaic. You have the big picture view of what you're trying to describe. You understand the decision environment and you use experts to provide particular tiles. You need a little triangular shape that's uh, white. Okay, great. Find that expert that can give you insight on how to produce that particular piece, place Mm. it into place. You need another piece. You don't understand how this comes together with that. There's probably an expert who understands that. Fine. Bring in that tile and you can form your own mosaic. And so that's Mm. really the way I think we should interact with your question earlier of best decision maker, best leader, best uh, predictor, et cetera. To unpack those uh, is really hard and complicated because I think there's a lot of cross currents in what makes someone the best at something. But one confusing or confounding variable that I think we humans are very prone to doing is we tend to look at decision outcomes and then draw judgment as to the quality of the decision process. Yes. And that's fundamentally flawed. And I mean, I, I hate it. I hate telling my friends when they're doing it, they're like, oh, it was a horrible decision. I was like, why? I said, look at what happened. I lost my money on that investment. And I was like, well, oh, that doesn't make it a bad decision. Mm. Would you do it again? He said, oh, no, because I lost money. I said, wait, 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 no, no. Would you do it again with the information you had at the time? And the answer is, yes, we would. Well, then it was a good decision. Right. right? So thinking in those terms, I think, is actually critical. Uh, decision processes and decision outcomes uh, are different. And, you know, don't evaluate process by an outcome. You know who who highlighted that for me indirectly? We did not have her on the show, but I'm sure you've, you're aware is Annie Duke, the poker player. Sure. Yep. Because yep. it's it, that that is a game in which you can know if you made the right decision, you know, speaking mathematically, uh, and yet the outcome can very easily go against you. That's right. Yeah. So Annie calls it result 
right? Using the result to determine the quality of the decision process. So yeah, I'm yeah. familiar with this work. And, you know, I've uh, presented at conferences at the same time, et cetera. So I, I'm sure. That. I want to know, how does Vikram make decisions? Like as an extremely well-educated person with tons of experts, I'm sure, on tap. And I know you mentioned you teach uh, a class at Harvard that really deals with a lot of difficult issues. How do you work through them? Sure. So the framework I tend to use, Chris, is I always insist on having multiple lenses exposed to a problem. And what I mean by that is, if we're dealing with a complex issue, I need to understand the economics of it. I need to understand the financial matters. But I also want to go look through what might be a political lens. I want to look through a sociology lens. I want to understand the morality and the ethical implications of the dynamic that we're discussing. Um, and so for me, the real power that I have found in decision-making uh, that's served me, I think, relatively well has been to assume and to take as an operating assumption that every single perspective is biased and incomplete. And as a result, I want to use multiple perspectives to triangulate towards hopefully what is an insight and make a decision based on that. So for me, it's about multiple lenses, multiple perspectives, and triangulating to get to hopefully an insight. My big takeaway from that that I want to incorporate is, you know, assume that every perspective, every lens is is incomplete. I, I really, I like that because societally, we can get caught up in titles and backgrounds and education. And I even know, I mean, look, almost anyone can make themselves sound like an expert these days. I mean, truly, oh, I've, I've done this. Heck, if I, every single pitch we get is a best-selling author. And I'm like, there can't be this many best-selling <laughs> authors or else you're not best-selling. You're just yeah. selling. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. so to your point, I, I think just starting from that, right? It's not a bad thing. It's not, um, you know, it's not being pessimistic. I think it's just being curious, it's just understanding that people, because of the nature of the world we're in with information flowing at a rate that we can't keep up with, uh, as a result, data exploding and choices um, becoming more prevalent everywhere we look. And, you know, we tend to filter, experts tend to focus on narrower, narrower and narrower areas. Mm -hmm. And the result is, by definition, you're not seeing the big picture because you've focused on something smaller. Right. Oh, Vikram, now you're really, you're getting my juices flowing because for the longest time I've thought, you know, we have this platform where we specifically try to pick these niche experts, but um, I get them for an hour and I kind of integrate them into my thought process. And I've thought, you know, I want to take the themes. I really want to take the themes and do like a YouTube thing on them. And you might be convincing me to do that. I'm going to be honest, like you, yeah. because it just, it seems like a really useful uh, thing to go through for myself and potentially for others. I like that idea. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I find very useful when helping people think through how to make decisions and, and how they interact with experts is to just say to them, look, you're only seeing part of the story mm. by this person who has not intentionally seeking to mislead you, right? This is a structural issue. There is no malicious intent here. Right? I'm not going to suggest that experts are trying to mislead you. They're not. They all mean really well. Everyone's trying to do the right thing. But because of the nature of information, 
the explosion in the volume of information and data, we have by definition tried to deal with this huge elephant by eating it in pieces, right? And so smaller and smaller pieces. And it leads you a little bit to an interpretation not unlike that famous parable of the six blind men touching an elephant, right? I mean, the one who's grabbed the trunk thinks it's a tree. The one who grabs the tail thinks it's a snake. And no one is able to see the whole thing because they're looking at parts. Uh, and right. the study of parts, which is really domineered academic thinking and philosophy, really a reductionist philosophy that let's reduce it to smaller and smaller parts, implies that the parts put together equal the whole. But there's also something that happens at the level of the whole that is not visible when you only look at parts. How often have you thought of that in, in terms of medicine? Like the one area it seems so apparent to me is how we have divided, for obvious reasons, the body up into so many disparate parts, when in yep. reality, the more we learn, the more we realize they're connected. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the book has several examples from that explicit domain of medicine. Oh, uh, what's your you favorite? One. Tell me one. Give you one. Yeah, let me give you one example. Uh, I mean, there's, there's several of them, but I'll just choose one that might illustrate the point of siloization and fundamental disconnects. Actually, let's talk about cholesterol and heart health. So here's one way to think about it, um, and and maybe this is useful, Chris. Uh, maybe you, you get some sense of it. Um, problem, but let's say you go to your cardiologist, right? Now, cardiologist is concerned with your heart, and the cardiologist does a bunch of analysis. The cardiologist does a whole bunch of tests, looks at your heart, and eventually concludes, uh, after some blood work, that actually, you know what? Yeah, Chris, it seems that you have high cholesterol and maybe your cardiologist chris is younger than you and she says look this is not something to be super concerned about i'm taking a statin all the other cardiologists around here they're all taking statins we really think you should be on a statin to lower your cholesterol and you are pretty smart about it you think about it you ask some questions pretty convincing and so you decide to jump on a statin to lower your cholesterol now, here's a couple of facts that are true. Number one, we know with pretty good research-backed evidence that higher cholesterol levels in the blood are associated with higher risk of heart attack. We also know with pretty good evidence that taking a statin will reduce your blood cholesterol, right? So we know those two things are pretty true. So you start taking your statin and lo and behold, Voila, your cholesterol level falls. So your cardiologist claims victory. You feel pretty good about this. And we're off to the races of success, right? Mm. Well, not right. And here's why. So next week, you or next year, let's say, give it some time. Your cholesterol levels have dropped. So you go see your endocrinologist. And your endocrinologist looks at you and says, Chris, eh, I don't know. I'm seeing some different things in your blood here. It doesn't give me comfort. I think you might be pre-diabetic. It looks like your blood sugar levels are rising. Your insulin isn't as effective. You might be developing early stage insulin resistance. Not really sure what's going on, but I think we got to watch this because, you know, an elevated risk of diabetes comes with an elevated risk of heart attack. Well, it turns out if you actually cross those two silos, what you find is that most statins work by interfering with the cholesterol production process in your blood, which is 
coordinated by an enzyme that also modulates insulin. And so while everything I said is true with those two data points of high cholesterol equals higher risk of heart attack, it's also true that a statin lowers your cholesterol. But the third fact is cholesterol being reduced by a statin does not reduce your risk of heart attack. Now, that's somewhat hard for people to get their arms around, right? Hold on. You just told me high cholesterol equals high risk, and you told me a, a statin lowers cholesterol. So why wouldn't a statin lower heart attack risk? Right. Well, it doesn't because all else equal is not true. In this case, we've crossed the silo into the domain of an endocrinologist, and you've come, your statin brings with it an elevated risk for, again, I'm using generalized populations. Sure. Not true for every single person, but a generalized risk that may be towards an increased risk of diabetes, which comes with an increased risk of heart attacks. And wow. so. At the end of the day here, what we find is uh, the silos created the issue, right? You allow one person to claim victory at another person's expense. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Have you ever been on your computer and you're searching for something? Maybe you're searching for a wife's birthday present or something like that, and you don't want everybody to know what you're searching for or to get targeted with ads and you know, just her Facebook and Instagram feeds starts showing up with some of the products that you've been searching for on her birthday. It's a pain, I know. And I know most of you are probably thinking, John, why don't you just use incognito mode? Call it a day. Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. Think about that. Every single website. That's why, even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast or whoever your local ISP is. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites that you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you to not be using it. So listen up. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com SPP, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com SPP, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com SPP. Okay, one more time expressvpn.com slash SPP to learn more. And now back to the episode. And really, I like that example because taking it to all other areas of life, we might not know. I mean, when you look at medicine, the one sometimes positive is we, we can measure so much of it. But how many times in our life are we making the same decisions without those clear data points to tell us eventually, hey, we're not seeing the whole picture? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very hard. I mean, seeing the whole picture is 
a real act of conscious zooming out and stepping back. Um, I think especially these days where we're surrounded with such short-termism, such, you know, bombardment of media everywhere you look and everywhere you uh, listen and online, et cetera, that you need to mindfully think about this to actually focus on the context. I actually want to ask you that in regards to media, how do you recommend making sense of our world? I've never been anti-media, right? I I tend to try to see the best in people, but I got to tell you with COVID, you just see the absurdity of the headlines of the, if it bleeds, it leads ideal. And I feel like I, I finally understand a lot of the anger, frustration, or loss at where do we go? I guess what I'm asking is not only how do we think for ourselves, but how do we do it when we're faced with so many different compelling perspectives? One thing I'd say is let's address somewhat, I think, uh, at least a partial elephant that may be in the room, which is the, uh, the, the highly polarizing nature of many forms of media, right? Um, right? And, and sort of the, the political slants that sort of infiltrate various media outlets. And I'm not saying right or left. I'm saying this just is a fact of modern life and it sort of helps people get eyeballs, which is their objective. Right. Um, and, you know, informing might be in sort of tangential or a side effect, but eyeballs is the, is the, is the ultimate objective. Um, and that's their motivation. So I would suggest that you seek information from multiple sources coming back to that same dynamic. You know, look, if you are a devout watcher and uh, a regular listener to all things that come from the Fox News enterprise, I would encourage you to listen to and watch all things that come from other enterprises, whether it's CNN or MSNBC, etc. But that takes conscious effort, right? I mean, I don't think the default is not there. Our default Mm -hmm. assumption is to go to our known sources and we believe and trust in them. So I'm going to ask you potentially to go to sources you don't trust, to listen, and not to believe, but to listen and to hear how other biases or other perspectives might describe the same thing. So that's one thing, a sort of proactive um, seeking, if you will, of disagreement or views contrary to your own. So I think that's really important in trying to make sense of today's world, and it encourages you to, encourages you to think for yourself. You know, the other thing I would say is it's really important to, to stay outside the little silos of information that we all are interested in. So if you're interested in one dynamic, let's say you happen to be in the high tech industry, and so your natural default is to read stories on the tech industry. Uh, That's easier to do online than it is in physical hard copy, newspapers, magazines, et cetera. And so I actually encourage my students and others, let's have you read old school physical magazines and newspapers because I want you to go flipping through information that you can't just jump to. And the passive nature of looking at headlines is going to help you develop context in a way that you're not going to when you click directly to what it is you're seeking and stay on your informational focus. Difficult these days, yeah. right? Because like even I will find my lack of willingness to purchase, say, a magazine at the airport has only increased because I'm like, well, yeah, there's an article about help, but I can just Google the word help and find 10 articles for free. You know what I mean? But- 
but it's obvious what happens with that. I mean, it really is. The, the, the lack of depth is or can be quite obvious. Your, your own focus increases, right? And if we think of focus as a universally good thing, well, that's fine, right? You're more focused. You're on topic. You're not wasting time. But if you think of peripheral insights and, and stuff that you wouldn't naturally go looking for but would appear in your frame as having any value, well, then you're losing something with these click-throughs directly to your end objective. In your book, one of the things it talks about is artificial intelligence. I mean, I know a large part of this is, as you've mentioned, the flood of information. How do we fight that? Because it's my understanding that really that flood of information is, I don't want to say preying upon, but giving us at a kind of a a root core what we want, right? Which is that uh, novelty, open something new, you know, grab the headline thing. So how do we fight that and and still stay up to date while maintaining kind of a, a, a broad scope, if you will? There's one is sort of artificial intelligence. Maybe you're hinting at algorithms that that filter for us. Yeah, um, you know, that just kind of give us what we want and, and yep. it, it can give us as much as we possibly want. Yeah. Well, let's take it to an extreme, right? Uh, if you are online and you have shown a propensity to follow up information relating to technology, uh, relating to database technology, relating to online hosted database, relating to online hosted relational database technology, eventually algorithms pick up on your narrower and narrower focus and they will be able to use that information to feed your worldview that they have you know, statistically determined is what you want to see, again, for the mere objective of getting clicks or eyeballs, not at all concerned about actually getting you informed or seeing things that may be interesting, insightful, that may actually change the way you think. They're going to take revealed preferences and pursue them as your only preferences. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's the that's the issue I have with some of this data, uh, some of these data algorithms that choose what you see. It's particularly problematic, I think, when it comes to to things like social media and how we consume information. You know, there's a section of the book which I uh, there's literally a page which is called social, and then I have in parentheses the word media, and then I have unrest. Social parentheses media parentheses unrest. And I actually think social media contributes to these feelings of being left behind, of the world being unfair, and you know, encouraging indirectly, passively, uh, people feeling like the system is rigged against them. And it has to do with the nature of what we post and how we post. I mean, I'm not going to jump on and post a really negative development of something that happened to me. Oh my God, I lost my job today. Post it. That, that's not what I'm going to feel naturally inclined to do. But I tell you what, if I get a promotion, I might be willing to jump on and be like, hey, how great is this? Let's imagine that you live in the real world. And in the real world, you experience positives and negatives. And you have this rich real life that has ups and downs. But you then jump online and you see the world online is really positive. All these posts are positive. And as a result, that's going to exacerbate your feelings of being left behind. It's going to increase your anxiety. It's going to fuel some sense of depression that your world is not as good as everyone else's, even though everyone else's world is probably the same as yours. They're yeah. just presenting the positive side. And so, you know, I asked 
is this partially the reason why maybe we had all the unrest in Latin America last year? Because some of the catalysts were quite trivial. A small increase in mass transit fares, meaningless, it was very small, but sort of tipped over the audience or the, the population to say, hey, this is unfair. I'm being left behind. Um, and so, you know, I asked, maybe social media and the algorithms are actually supporting this feeling of anxiety and being left behind. There's a guy, uh, his name's Mark Manson, and we've interviewed him a long, long time ago, but I just stumbled across a YouTube video that kind of, it, it was kind of saying what you're just saying. And look, I mean, plenty of people understand this idea that we put on a facade oftentimes in social media, but I don't think it had sunk in, at least for me, in the same way you're saying it now, which is we all know that, but imagine how much that's creating our sense of reality. Like if everything we see is somebody's best point of their day, then it's it's inevitable that that skews your medium place, right? Like what yeah. you believe reality to be. And yeah. that is yes. definitely going to lead to comparison issues, unhappiness, want, yeah. all of those things. I wanted to talk about your, your background a little because we haven't yet, but I always, I mean, look, it's one of the reasons I started the show. I like talking to people with a lot of degrees and I find it fascinating because I never had that much focus. I never had that much uh, determination. So you, you have two master's degrees, a PhD, MIT, Yale, you teach at Harvard. Like, has this always been part of you? Is it just a curiosity thing? What, what was the drive and have you always kind of wanted to be thinking and thinking for yourself and making sure you have the right view and the right understanding of things? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Chris. And it's one I obviously do think about. Um, but yeah, I've always had this drive, but I think it was heavily influenced by my parents. Um, my parents were both immigrants from India. Uh, actually, that's not even technically right. They come from a part of the world that is today known as Pakistan, but it was before the partition. So, um, you know, the Brits drew the line. And so they were refugees from uh, what became West Pakistan into what is today India before making their way, you know, roundabout way, but eventually to the United States. Uh, but that partition process led to them losing a lot of things, physical goods and, and, and wealth. Um, and both my parents were younger when that happened. Um, but one of the things they taught me was, you know, in this world, a lot of things can get taken away from you. Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of ways things can be lost. But whatever you put in your head cannot be taken away from you. And so fill your head first. Uh, learn things. Education is something that will never be stripped from you. Um, and so that partially a background story, if you will, uh, to the whole dynamic of my pursuit of education. But yeah, I also think I was naturally curious and wanted to learn and wanted to learn. Uh, and then, you know, I, after my undergraduate days, I took six years to work in finance and uh, investing. And, you know, even that was interesting, but I felt the need to go back and get more education and wanted to learn more. I wanted to get more rigorous in my thinking. Um, and that's why I went back to MIT. Uh, and as you said, I got two master's degrees. Um, one was in international security studies. Why is that? Because I, I actually, know what that means. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I enrolled at MIT in a PhD program. Um, which for someone who thinks broadly and thinks it's really important to be broad, 
that might in and of itself be a really curious development, right? To say, wait, Vicar, you went and got a PhD? You're just telling me I should be broad. Isn't the PhD narrow and deep? The answer is yes, except what the PhD I pursued was a PhD in innovation at MIT. And the reason I ended up at MIT was because they offered such a PhD. And that enabled me to pursue a topic that was by nature broad and multidisciplinary. And so what I learned in my PhD on the topic of innovation was how to think differently, but how to think differently with rigor. Um, And so that's really what I went to pursue, except as a, like a kid in a candy store after six years of working, when you go back to grad school, I was like, wait, this is really cool. There's a class on this. Oh, I want to learn about that. What about this? Um, And so I I quickly found myself uh, pursuing enough Um, or as many classes as I wanted to and topics I cared about that I earned a master's degree in political science with a focus on security studies. So defense politics, geopolitics. Mm. Then I got a master's in management. And believe it or not, I actually thought I was going to leave the PhD program after that master's degree. And and, uh, so I started working part-time and doing other things, but eventually did finish the PhD. Well, and you mentioned something in there and I noticed it in your background. I know a previous book, talked about it. What would you consider like your forte now? Because I know you've done a lot of things with finance. Yeah. So I don't think I have a forte. <laughs> Chris, ah. I think I have, I, so, he, I, so he's a, he, he's a guy who's gone deep at academically, but he's broad professionally. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> I try to think of myself as a generalist. You know, I, I self-describe myself as a global generalist, okay. meaning I like to cross borders and I like to cross functions. No, I don't like to be put in a box, whether it's geographic, functional, industry, or what have you. Here's the thing, right? And and you and I mentioned this before we were recording, but um, as we think about range, we think about you know David Epstein's book. I, I love this idea of being broad, but do you think it's kind of a lot easier to say when you're a professor and you can, especially at somewhere like Harvard, and you can really just go like, I want to teach a course that's interesting, as opposed to if you're... I don't know, the majority of us who need to focus somewhere in order to make a living. I mean, what's your response to that? The person who's like, I can't be broad because I need to be an expert in order to get paid in this line of work. Yeah, no, it's interesting, Chris. So what I'll say is with my example, since you since you brought it up, in my case, it's not what you think it is, which is, oh, I'm a professor at Harvard, therefore I get to teach the topic of multidisciplinary addressing of, of problems. Um and a story may illustrate that. So I was teaching at Yale at the time, and I live in the Boston area. And so I wanted to stop the commute and um, was in conversation with some folks over at Harvard. And um, one of them who I knew really well was helping me find a home at Harvard. Um, and the initial place was, oh, let's go to the economics department. Bikram's, you taught a book, you've written a book about finance, you've taught classes about financial bubbles and economic inequality topics of interest to you. This is a logical home, except I don't have a PhD in economics. So they said, you're not a card carrying member of our profession. Sorry. (laughs) That that didn't work. So, well, okay, well, you know, Vikram, you've got a master's in political science. Let's go see maybe government. Well, I don't have a PhD in government. That didn't work out. Well, maybe sociology because you cross a couple different disciplines. Eh, Not really. You're not a sociologist. Mm. And I actually think, was never asked, but I was taken over to meet the dean of the School of Engineering. Um, and we just got talking about the topics of interest and how I would think about them, et cetera, and what I might want to teach. Um, and I think the question was not, what did I study, but where did you study? 
And I said, oh, I have my PhD from MIT. And I think that was enough in the engineering school. Nobody, nobody asked any further. That's awesome. They're <laughs> like, well, it must be engineering then. I have faced the same pressure you're describing, which is specialize to get your seat, if you will, to be able to make a living and do other things. I feel the same thing. It is hard. Academia is structured around being narrow, being a reductionist, and breaking things down and being focused, being deep, not wide. And that's very contrary to me. That's part of the reason why I never became a true um, you know, tenure track academic faculty member and that I've right. always stayed as a lecturer, even though I, I mean, I could be on the tenure track. I just never wanted to um, because I wanted the ability to be broad. I have to ask you real quickly about finance. How in the world is our stock market up with all this? Yeah. Like, can we just spend five minutes and pick your financial brain? Because I know sure. you've talked about bubbles and you, sure. you know, what can, can you help us understand what's going on here? Yeah, I wish I could. I will tell you, I am scratching my head as much as I think a lot of people are when it comes to the idea of what is happening with the financial market. I mean, I think someone told me the NASDAQ is actually up not only on the year, but is approaching an all-time high here at a time where, you know, we've got a global pandemic, we're having, uh, you know, protesters and race-related riots, uh, we're having, you know... Um, massive unemployment. Um, we have a lot of issues in the world, a, a trade war that's turning into a rivalry with China that might turn into, you know, effectively a Cold War style competition. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to have concern in this world. The only explanation I can come up with that might provide some light on the fact that markets have been moving up as much as they have is that, you know, there's been a lot of money printed and central bank activity has created a, uh, a cycle of rising prices, forcing more people that were sitting out to get back in because they're worried about their careers. Mm. Right? And so it's just as dangerous to have, you know, underperformance. Uh, if you're a portfolio manager running a large mutual fund, you know, you get forced into these things. And as a result, right. As a result, you may have uh, these cycles that go between virtuous and vicious, depending upon uh, what happens in a very short run view, but then they keep going in whatever reason they went. So this could have been a legitimately logical bounce that has developed a life of its own, right? And so um, I don't have good answers here. I'm sorry. No, I mean, look, if you were able to say, oh, yeah, here's why, here's what it's going to do, I'd be even more impressed. It almost is kind of cathartic just to hear somebody who, I mean, heck, I was reading, you know, Worth Magazine profiled you as one of the 100 most powerful people in global finance. Yeah. So, look, if you don't know what's going on, I sure as hell won't figure it out. I take issue with your last statement. That okay. I don't figure it out. You wouldn't. That is something that is contrary to everything I believe. I would rather hear your explanation of why you think the markets are going up because sometimes it's in fact that focus on it, the attention paid to it that blinds you to some answers that could be insightful. So I'd actually be more curious in you telling me why the markets have done what they are because mm -hmm. I sure as heck don't know. Yeah, no, I'm actually glad you said that because it is true to what you say, right? And it is why I want to have you on. And it is why I think this message is important. 
the type of person that listens to this podcast is definitely a generalist, right? I mean, we're one of the only podcasts I know that will cover literally every topic uh, for the most part because we believe in that, right? And at the same time, we want as unbiased, as expert opinion as we can get. But to your point, we need to be able to do that without turning over our thinking. And it's something I'm working on. It's why I wanted to have you on because I'm a big believer in language and the language we use will kind of become that self-fulfilling prophecy. So if I say something like, well, Vikram doesn't know, and he's got this fancy title, then I can't, then, then do I just stop? Do I stop learning, trying, you know? And so it's a, it's, it's an empowering thought. I think what you're putting out there in your book on this, you know, in the show, probably with your students. Yeah. Well, actually, Chris, I end the book with a logic that's precisely around embracing what I call fresh eyes and, you know, claiming you shouldn't squander ignorance. And I've got some stories explicitly about people who were not expert in a particular domain who figured out what experts couldn't. Right. Hmm. And so there, there's, I mean, I'll give you one quick example. There's this guy, yeah. Frank, Frank Gaudio. He was a financial and economic consultant. I think he worked for like the United Nations. He advised the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, a whole bunch of other things. But he had a personal interest in underwater archaeology. And, you know, he'd spend time looking at shipwrecks in Asia and other places. Um, but then he heard about an undiscovered city that was supposedly near Alexandria in Egypt. And here's an amateur. He's a financial guy. He's not an underwater archaeologist. He doesn't have a degree in archaeology. And in the year 2000, he took mathematical approaches, which the field of archaeology had not been taking, to effectively discover an entire city where no one else was looking. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to think of how valuable an unadulterated, independent, fresh perspective can bring. You know, that was one I used. Another example was the uh, the, the minister of mining uh, in Chile when the mining disaster happened, um, you know, back in, I think it was 2010, if I don't, if I remember correctly. And these miners were trapped underground alive. The mining minister was new to the job, had never been exposed really in any depth to mining, was a business guy. And so what did he do? He came on scene and he just listened. He listened to every expert that came forth, including wacky ideas from other beginners. You know, one of the ideas was, hey, you know, we're going to put little panic buttons on rafts and send them down into the hole and they'll climb through the different passageways and get to the miners and they'll push the panic button. Then we'll know they're alive. Hmm. You know, like wacky ideas that my guess is a real mining expert would have just dismissed completely. Like, that's crazy. Stop. Leave me alone. He listened to it, Lawrence Goldbone. He listened to all these ideas. And you know, I think that formed a framework that let him be valuable as an independent. And you know, there's also stories from finance. I, I talk about how Druckenmiller, uh, Stan Druckenmiller, who worked with George Soros for, for a long time, um, and is one of the most successful and, and uh, you know, best investors perhaps of all time. Um, but how he really embraced fresh eyes and did things that a hardcore finance specialist would not have done early in his career. And it gave him opportunities that compounded upon himself. And so, Mm. you know, anyway, my point is I love empowering people that say, oh, I will never because you're expert and you don't. Wait, 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 whoa. (laughs) That is absolutely not true. I want you to embrace those fresh eyes. Embrace, you know, don't squander that ignorance. It's precious. 
I'll tell you something that not only supports your viewpoint, but I think is also even more encouraging for our listeners, and they'll recognize this. Just a few episodes ago, uh, we aired an interview with the co-founder of Square. So this guy is worth like um, $3 billion. You know, he worked obviously with the, the guy who founded Twitter, um, Jack Dorsey. And anyways, his whole book, his whole point, it's called The Innovation Stack. And he talks about how really what he did, your average person just continuing to solve problems and therefore through the process becoming not only a winning company, but the success story. That was our interview with Vikram Mancharani. Right? Hope you enjoyed it. Vikram's book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence, can be found wherever books are sold. And as Chris experience. mentioned at the start so, of the interview, you're not please don't to, judge us by the sound of the audio so really, quality you know, in this episode. We know we screwed up on that. We promise we'll be better. We don't have we've got over 350 episodes where we've shown it. that. So just know that we'll be working hard to bring the best sounding interviews well, Victor, we can bring I, to you. I want to say possible. first, thank you so much for being on. All right, so on to some quick housekeeping. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a rating or review wherever you download your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Podcasts, and, uh, Spotify, to make Stitcher, and make the Google Play Store. Place. It doesn't um, matter. Any rating or review you leave us will greatly appreciate. And, and if you'd like to support us monetarily, you can always head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And if you'd like to reach uh, out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast.gmail.com or message us on Twitter at so Smart People Pod. Airs, and of course, if you want to stay up to date but, um, with all well, things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, right smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for no, the newsletter. No, um, all right, we hope you and your family say. and friends continue <laughs> to stay safe and sane. So make sure you keep trying to learn something new every day. Stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. We will see you all next episode. I posted a lot of my articles on LinkedIn. My website, which is just uh, my last name.com, www.mantramani.com, has other information there. And I'm also active on Twitter. Um, I, I tend to go in cycles of more active and less active over time, but uh, Twitter is something I am using more of. And so my handle there is at Mantramani. All right. And we'll, and we'll link to that as well. I'm going to follow you on Twitter. I'm really interested in what you're putting out there. So keep putting out this good work. Keep, um, you know, advocating for us who want to rely on others to continue to think for ourselves. I think it's a really fascinating and important message. Perfect. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me.